If you've been around UPC for a while, you know that we are in the midst of an exciting season. We have made space as a church over the last year to listen where the Spirit is calling us as a family into this next season of ministry. As we've listened to the Spirit, it is clear that Jesus is calling us next door. As a church, we're being challenged to shift the center of our gravity away from the church building here at UPC, but into our neighborhoods where we live, work, and play. Last week, Pastor George taught us about becoming a neighbor, that we need a circle of friends to help us become neighbors. Today, we will continue to look at how we become a family of neighborhood communities, the model that we see from the early church in Acts. Maybe for many of us, Mr. Rogers is our celebrity slash ministry hero. Yet no doubt, we wonder at times whether his gentle, understated, quaint brand of ministry is powerful enough to meet the real needs of our complex modern world. In fact, I think if we get to the root of it, the bigger question underlying all of this that we're all asking is, is the gospel really good news for my neighbors? Is the gospel powerful? Powerful enough to transform even the deepest of broken relationships? This is a question I've had to wrestle with. Perhaps like many of you, I had a significant encounter with Jesus in college. I was already a Christian, but during my time at university, I encountered a Jesus that I really wanted to follow. Jesus turned my life upside down my freshman year. I went on a two-week urban service project where I was catapulted right into the gritty world that I would rather have ignored, where I cleaned the homes of elderly, shared meals with homeless friends, and played with kids at a community center. All of the theology that I thought I had in my head hadn't prepared me for real life. I was a complete mess. I felt unhelpful, weak, and useless. And that was exactly what I needed. Over the next four years, God broke me and put me back together. As a response, I committed at the end of my senior year to do campus ministry at a small liberal arts college in Tacoma so that I could help students have an experience with Jesus like I had had. I started off with unbridled optimism. Flash forward four years, and I was burnt out, having panic attacks, and entirely disappointed. I'd been called to plant a campus ministry chapter, and it had failed. For the last four years, I had been the only staff person on my campus trying to hold things together. One by one, students dropped out of ministry. We would go knock on doors to invite students to come to Bible study, and not one student would come, week after week. And so finally, we gave up. So it felt like time to go back to grad school, to find my escape back into the academic world and leave behind my failure. The summer before my classes started, I went on an archaeological dig in Israel. I wish I could say that I had this powerful faith experience in the Holy Land, but all I felt was relief not to be burdened with the weight of following Jesus. It wasn't that I didn't believe in God anymore, it just felt like the cost of following Jesus wasn't worth it. I felt exhausted and alone. Coming to Seattle for the fall 
had already secured a room in UPC's International Friendship House, a home for international and American students to live in Christian community and welcome international students. I moved in, but I felt a little bit like a fake. I didn't share how distant I felt from Jesus and how little I wanted to have anything to do with Christian community at the moment. I figured I'd give myself a quarter and then look for a new place to live. FYI, I ended up living for five years at the International Friendship House. Little did I know, but I was about to have another significant experience with Jesus through the community at IFH. When I moved in, there were housemates from Mexico, Indonesia, mainland China, Taiwan, and Korea. The majority of them did not grow up in the church. They had stories to tell. One housemate, Hendry, had been a radical communist revolutionary in Indonesia, then converted to Christianity, and eventually became a Catholic priest. Another housemate, Vicky, was an undergraduate from China who met Jesus through her friends at IFH. We got to celebrate her baptism as a house, and it was such a sweet moment. As I grew close to this circle of international friends that invited me in, I found my heart being restored. I discovered freedom. No more pressure to plant something new, to build something, to change the world, but simply to be with friends, love them, work through differences in culture and personality. Following Jesus had never felt so free. As we grew close to one another, new international friends were always drawn into the mix. My first year in Seattle, we got to know a graduate student from Afghanistan. He was older than the rest of us, a Muslim, working in the government in Afghanistan as they rebuilt after the war. Even though he was the only student from his country in a house of mostly Asians, he kept coming to dinners and eventually even to church. One week, at a Sunday service, he encountered Jesus, and he gave his life to Jesus right then and there. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yet none of this was anything new. The IFH was planted over 40 years ago, the dream of UPC member Gassat Bello, who had come to SPU in the 1960s as an international student. At that time, there weren't many international students in Seattle, and it was a very lonely time for him. When he and his wife, Perla, returned to Seattle in the 1970s, they were instrumental in the founding of the first International Friendship House, a ministry of UPC designed to be a home away from home for international students. UPC has more than 40 years of ministry with internationals, which is one thing I love about this church and drew me to worship here. So it's clear that even as we talk about this new mission to reach out next door, in many ways, it's clear that this mission isn't anything new at all, but it's a part of who we always have been. Like many others before me, I found healing through a circle of friends at the International Friendship House and saw international and American friends drawn to Jesus through that community. This reignited my love for Jesus and helped me truly believe that the gospel really is Good news. Before we go any further discussing how our neighbors can be blessed by Jesus through us, we need to ask, what if we actually need our neighbors to connect us back to Jesus? 
What if we need our neighbors to heal our broken picture of the gospel? What if we need these relationships with our skeptical atheist coworkers, our neighbor with the broken down cars in the lawn, or the doormate who eats your cereal even though it's labeled? <laughs> they don't just need us, we may very well need them. Our neighbors may not be the poorest of the poor. Many of our neighbors may seem like they have their lives put together, living the American dream, working at Amazon and getting paid six figures. What is the good news that our neighbors here in Seattle are longing for? What would it look like to embody that good news? It may look like joining our neighbors in combating an epidemic of loneliness and fighting against the Seattle freeze. It may mean inviting others to sit with you and your friends at lunch in the high school cafeteria. It may mean coming alongside your neighbors in the retirement home and building community. As we are shaped by Jesus, even our ordinary, everyday lives here in Seattle may start to become a little radical and actually become good news lived out. What if living as a family of communities is the good news for our neighbors? Scripture presents to us a model of what living this way could actually look like. Acts 2, 42 through 47 is a model of family on mission, of circles of friends sharing life together that is compelling to their neighbors. As you turn to Acts 2, verses 42 through 47 in your pew Bibles on page 886, let's back up for a little context. If we want to accurately understand the way of life described in Acts 2, we need to note the context of this passage. This beautiful picture of the early church comes immediately after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is incredibly significant. Reliance on the Holy Spirit is the foundation upon which any sort of community life or personal relationship with Jesus is possible. As Jesus offered his farewell address to his disciples in the Gospel of John, Jesus promised them that another was coming, the Holy Spirit, that would comfort them and that the Holy Spirit would have power. Here's another question for you. Do you really believe that the Holy Spirit has power? And what does it even look like to rely on the Holy Spirit? How can we let ourselves be filled with and led by God's Spirit? Our story begins, Jesus has just left the disciples and gone up to heaven, and they've been waiting. They're gathered together, wondering what's next, and suddenly the Holy Spirit descends on them like tongues of fire. The disciples are filled with God's Spirit, and they begin to preach the good news of God's salvation to the crowds in Jerusalem at the temple. And the Jews who are gathered there from all around the world hear it in their own languages. Two important points to note here are one, the Holy Spirit came when the believers were gathered together. This wasn't something that happened individually, but corporately. The Holy Spirit came when they were waiting, not passively, but actively. They waited by praying. Two, the Holy Spirit has come for all people. And the purpose is so that all people who call on God's name would be saved. The Holy Spirit was not a private gift, but a marker of a new people belonging to God, an ever-growing family of believers. 
It goes on to say in Acts that when the people heard this good news, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. How do we get access to the power of the Holy Spirit? We're called to repent, metanoeo in Greek, which means to change our mind, to reorient our lives in a new way. And we're called to be baptized, to publicly identify ourselves with Jesus as members of the church body. This wasn't just a promise to them, but to us. We have access to the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the only thing which makes the way of life that we're about to look at possible. So if you haven't already, let's turn to Acts 2, 42 through 47, page 886. As you are able, please stand with me and let's read the word of God out loud together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now let's work our way through this passage together and unpack each of the community practices of the early church and ask some questions about what each of these practices could look like in our lives today. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The first phrase to note here is that they devoted themselves. In Greek, this literally means they held fast to or persevered. It comes from the Greek verb proskartereo, which means a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a course of action. In fact, this was the same verb used in, earlier in Acts to describe the disciples as they waited in the upper room before Pentecost when they devoted themselves to prayer. It's key to remember that the practices that we're about to follow were intended to be ongoing, regular practices. This snapshot of the early church in Acts 2 was not meant to be some sort of spiritual anomaly, but the consistent practices of the church. Not easy practices, but challenging ones that would take dedication and persistence. In this passage, we find four primary practices that we will unpack together. The first practice that the early church devoted themselves to was to the apostles' teaching. This was a learning community. They learned from scripture and shared stories about their experiences with Jesus. Remember, the disciples had just spent years traveling with Jesus and listening to him teach from the Hebrew scriptures. The apostles now, in turn, 
teach their community what they have been taught by Jesus. I imagine this is a mix of Bible study and storytelling. They share what they learned from Jesus as he taught in the synagogues, and they share the stories of life with Jesus as he healed, performed miracles, shocked, and challenged them. The second practice was fellowship, or in Greek, koinonia. They spent time together. They knew each other. Think about in your own life, what was the best circle of friends that you ever had? What did that look like? What kinds of things did you do together? If I could take a guess, your best community experience was one where you did life together. Often the best friends that we make come from summer camp or college dorms or mission trips because those are the times in our life where we are forced to do life together. What about the best conversations you've ever had? For me, the best conversations have usually happened over meals. For the early church, koinonia happened through breaking bread. They ate meals together. They ate in one another's homes. They lived like family. Some of Jesus' most important moments of fellowship with his disciples happened over meals. At his last supper with his disciples, before he was crucified, Jesus started the meal by breaking and blessing the bread and the wine, a typical practice at a Jewish meal. But he did something new. He said, this bread is my body broken for you. This, blood, this wine is my blood shed for you. Jesus took the most ordinary aspect of everyday life and turned it into an enduring practice of the church. In the early church, believers shared a meal together in remembrance of what Jesus had done for them. Today, we still do this. We take communion during the church service. We may come up to the front or pass a plate with a small piece of bread and a tiny cup of wine. But in the earliest church, the Lord's Supper was more like a dinner party. The earliest practice of the church was a full-on, multi-course meal, a dinner party in remembrance of Jesus. Practice four. They spent time in prayer, devoting themselves to hearing from God, not letting themselves get disconnected from the source of life. The passage goes on. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. The early church didn't just live in a bubble, but were out in the community taking risks to let the Spirit work through them. They healed people, cast out demons, they continued the very work that they had seen Jesus doing while he was on earth with them. Their ministry looked like Jesus' ministry. And this caused their neighbors to sit up and pay attention. The Greek word that we translate as awe is phobos, which literally means fear. There's something fearful and awe-inspiring about the power that is being displayed through the church. All throughout the book of Acts, the early church is characterized by signs and wonders through the Spirit. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This part of the story often causes people to get alarmed. This is a call to a way of life where people become more important than possessions. It is clear from the rest of Acts that every believer did not sell everything that they owned, but that there was a radical commitment to sharing and caring for the needs within the Christian community and to neighbors. 
Their way of viewing their possessions changed. Nothing was seen as mine, but as a gift from God, which could be readily released for the sake of others. Because they spent so much time together and in their neighborhoods, they knew the needs around them and were quick to be able to respond. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They met day by day as a whole larger community at the temple and met in smaller circles of friends in their own homes. As we dream about where God is calling us as University Presbyterian Church in this next season of ministry, imagine this. You're living day by day in a circle of friends, engaging with your neighbors, and you meet back up together at the big house, back here at UPC on a Sunday, and you're able to celebrate together and rejoice in what you're seeing God do among your friends and neighbors. We meet back here on Sunday to worship the living God, to center on God's word, to share stories, and to reconnect over a meal. And then we're energized and ready to go back out into our neighborhoods alongside our friends for the week ahead. I love the model here that scripture lays out for us as a family of communities, many circles of friends who are all connected together as a bigger church family. After my first two years of living in the International Friendship House, my life had been transformed, as well as many students. But I also saw that something was still missing. I saw a disconnect between the circle of friends at the International Friendship House and UPC. At that time, most of the residents of the house didn't worship at UPC, and many didn't have a church family to come to on a Sunday at all. These students needed an extended family. Many were far from home and didn't have any relationships with anyone other than other college students. The young adults at IFH needed the mothers and fathers and grandparents and brothers and sisters that the larger church had to offer. And UPC needed these international students. Our church needed the gift of international students to bring life, new energy, new believers, new cultures into the life of the church. We learned from Acts that we aren't just called to live in a circle of friends, but to be a circle of friends connected to a larger family of communities. Finally, we read in the passage that day by day, they're seeing people being saved. This circle of Jesus-loving friends is so full of joy, so full of power, and so authentic that their neighbors can't help but want to know this Jesus they keep talking about. The early church not only talks about caring for the poor, but they actually do it. They don't just talk about God's love and healing, but they go out and heal people. When someone has need, they sacrifice for one another. Friends, there is no cynic so hardened that will not be touched by the love of a community like this. The community that we see here in Acts is the embodiment of the good news that the kingdom of God is here. We often write this passage off as too idealistic or too radical. But here's the thing. I've seen this work. When we live this way, we see people day by day coming to be saved. This is what I've seen at the International Friendship House, 
and what we will see as we step next door in circles of friends. I can't wait to see what the Holy Spirit will do through this congregation, through circles of friends who take the call into our neighborhoods seriously. I promise you, this is where you are going to find new life and restoration in your faith, and your neighbors are going to find new life and purpose and joy as well. Don't you long for that? Now, it won't be easy. I don't want to give any false promises here. As we get mixed up with our neighbors next door, we're going to have moments where it quickly becomes clear to us that we are not Mr. Rogers. We won't always live up to our best ideals. We're going to lose our temper, get frustrated, and make mistakes along the way. If we read further into the story in the book of Acts, we will see that the early church was not perfect. They struggled, made mistakes. The way of life that we're being called into as a church is impossible without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to live this way, we're going to need to learn how to become increasingly reliant on the Holy Spirit. The call to go next door is going to be harder and more beautiful than any of us can even imagine. To take a next step on this journey ahead, I want to leave us with a clear call to action. This week, make space for the Holy Spirit. What would it look like for you to make it a priority to hear from God? I encourage you to do this in community. Remember, the Holy Spirit showed up when the disciples were gathered together waiting. Here are some ideas. At your next small group meeting, take some extra space for prayer where you leave silence to listen to the Spirit. Or go on a prayer walk through your neighborhood with a Christian neighbor and ask God for the eyes to see your neighborhood as he sees it. Whatever it is that makes sense for you, make space this week to hear from Jesus alongside your friends. Friends, as we continue on this journey together, I pray that we may come to see that the invitation to meet God in the context of a circle of friends is a gift for us. And that if we live this way, day by day, we will see our neighbors drawn to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that you bring a message of salvation that is truly good news to all people all around the world throughout the ages. We ask that you move in our hearts to love our neighbors as you love them and that you would pull us into circles of friends that love our neighbors like family. Give us the courage and strength to live counterculturally, to be people who put relationships over materialism, who take time to invest in friendships, who know the needs of our neighbors and can respond generously. We know, Father, that we can only do this work through the power of your Holy Spirit. So revive our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.